This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Fear. Rage. Two words loaded with emotion. Two words that can make a person feel helpless and out of control. Two words that can cloud a person's judgment. Two words that can change the course of their life. Robert Hansen claimed that fear and rage were the key emotions that led him to betray his country, to become a mole, and to be one of the most damaging spies in the history of the FBI. Okay, on to the show. On April 18, 1944, Howard and Vivian Hansen welcomed their only child, Robert Philip Hansen, into the world. The Hansen family were based in Norwood Park, Chicago, where World War II veteran Howard worked as a police officer. Robert's childhood was not a happy one. Howard was emotionally and, on at least two occasions, physically abusive towards young Robert. The emotional abuse seemed to be Howard's way of controlling Robert by making him feel helpless. A Washington Post article states that when Robert learned to drive and took his driving test, Howard bribed the testing officer to ensure that Robert would fail in an attempt to further destroy Robert's self-confidence and sense of worth. According to Vivian, Robert was a quiet boy. The abuse caused him to withdraw further. He sought solace in books and was happiest in the safety and comfort of his bedroom, reading a spy novel. However, friends report that there was a side of Robert that his parents weren't privy to. His friends saw him as a risk-taker, someone who would follow through on fun and crazy ideas, someone who would have car races in suburban streets. From an early age, there were two sides of Robert Hansen. Howard had struggled to make ends meet as a police officer and wanted a better life for his son than he had. He wanted Robert to pursue a career in medicine. After Robert graduated high school in 1962, he began the first of nine years of college education. He attended Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, nearly 200 miles away from his childhood Chicago home, where he studied chemistry and Russian, as well as taking pre-med classes at his father's insistence. Robert hated his pre-med classes, and he started to resent his father for pushing him into them. Robert did not want his father to visit him at college for fear that his father would do something to embarrass or distress him. During one visit, Howard spoke to Robert's professors and spoke badly about Robert. In 1966, he graduated with a bachelor's in chemistry and began applying for jobs. After losing out on a position as a cryptographer for the National Security Agency, he went back to college. Howard was determined that Robert would go into a medical field, but Robert had no interest in being a doctor, and instead, he decided to study dentistry at Northwestern Dental School. He wasn't really interested in being a dentist either, but he chose to compromise his happiness for the sake of pleasing his father. While Robert was in college, he met Bernadette Walk, who was also known as Bonnie. 
The pair met when Robert was working as a recreational therapist at a psychiatric facility. Robert and Bonnie began dating, and on August 10, 1968, the pair married. Bonnie was a Roman Catholic, and Robert, who was raised Lutheran, converted to his wife's religion. As well as converting, Robert joined his wife in Opus Dei, a conservative Catholic group. Despite an early incident of infidelity on Robert's part, the pair stayed together and went on to have six children together, three daughters and three sons. Shortly after Robert and Bonnie were married, after three years of dental classes, Robert decided to switch his major to business. Howard was furious, but Robert insisted that his happiness was worth the anger his father felt. In 1971, he received his MBA in accounting and information systems. Upon graduating from Northwestern, Robert accepted a job at an accounting firm. After working for the firm for a year, he followed in his father's footsteps, something Howard never wanted, and in 1972, he started working for the Chicago police. While working for the police department, he continued to use his accounting skills, doing forensic accounting to try and uncover police corruption. Robert held his position at the police department for nearly four years before landing a job working for the FBI. On January 12, 1976, Robert was sworn in as a secret agent for the FBI. Although the agents were not required to, Robert chose to dress in dark suits and white shirts. This formal dress sense was accompanied by a stern demeanor and awkward interpersonal interactions. Other agents were not drawn to Robert, and he was once again a loner who withdrew from those around him. Robert was stationed in Gary, Indiana, where he was a criminal investigator. In 1978, Robert was moved to New York and he began working for the FBI's Soviet Counterintelligence Unit. And in 1979, Robert made the decision to betray his country. He had become increasingly frustrated with the FBI and the agents he worked with, and those feelings led him to his life of espionage. He started by sharing classified information with GRU, a Soviet military intelligence agency. The package, which was dropped to the Russians, revealed the identity of an FBI agent who was working as a mole in the GRU. Dmitry Polyakov, who had been spying for the Americans from deep inside GRU for two decades, was arrested and executed when his true identity was discovered. This wouldn't be the only information Robert would part with. Over a period of two years, Robert continued to feed information to the Russians in exchange for money. By the time his wife caught on to him in the early 1980s, Robert had received tens of thousands of dollars in exchange for information. According to Bonnie in a New York Times article, she entered the basement of their Scarsdale, New York home where Robert was working. Robert quickly covered up what he was working on, which made Bonnie suspicious, and she began asking questions. Robert eventually confessed that he was working with the Russians, but said that he was giving them incorrect information and was not actually giving them anything they could use. This, of course, was not true. But Bonnie trusted her husband and believed his confession. Bonnie insisted that Robert confess to their Opus Dei-affiliated priest, so the pair drove to meet with priest Bucchiarelli. The priest told Robert that if he donated all the money that the Russians paid him to charity and promised not to work with them again, then he didn't have to tell the FBI what he had done. 
Robert agreed to this plan, and Bonnie hoped he would stick to it. When she asked about donating the money to charity, Robert revealed that the sum he received was around 30000 and most of it had already been spent. Robert assured his wife that he would donate the money, as promised, little by little. At times, these payments appeared to cause financial hardship for the Hansen family, but Bonnie was fastidious about the payments being made, no matter what. In 1981, Robert was transferred from New York to Washington, D.C. Initially, he worked in the FBI's budget unit where he wasn't privy to any information that would interest the Russians. However, before long, he was working in the Soviet analytical unit with access to valuable national secrets. In 1985, Robert moved back to New York to be a supervisor for a technical surveillance squad. While in this role, Robert continued to have access to sensitive information pertaining to Russia. Bonnie would occasionally question Robert about whether or not he had gone back to spying for the Russians. And each time, Robert denied this was the case. Bonnie didn't push things and took her husband's word at face value. Robert told Bonnie in 1985 that he had finished making payments to charity, and the couple purchased a modest and affordable three-bedroom home in Yorktown Heights. Bonnie later said that the house was her idea. She wanted a home they could easily afford so Robert would not have any financial reason to spy for the Russians again. Little did Bonnie know, her husband was tempted back to spying and he hid it from her for the next 15 years. The FBI has confirmed that from October 1985, Robert was back spying for the Russians and was actively engaged with the KGB. Robert anonymously shared classified documents with the KGB, signing the communication with the letter B. Around October 1st, Robert sent a letter to the home of a Soviet embassy official who resided in Virginia. The information shared in the letter pertained to the identity of KGB agents who had been cooperating with the FBI. Valery Martinov, Sergei Moronin, and Boris Yuzin were all recruited by the United States Intelligence Service and were all sharing Russian secrets with the U.S. When the Russians found out that these men had been betraying their country, they were arrested. Valery and Sergei were executed for their crimes while Boris went to prison but was later released. More documents were sent to the same Virginia address in mid and late October. Robert received compensation for his spying in early November when he collected $50,000 from a dead drop site in Nottoway Park, a park located in the Virginia town of Vienna, 16 miles from Washington, D.C. Along with the money was a note, the contents of which is not known. After more than six months with no written communication that we know of, Robert sent two more letters to the KGB in 1986. This time, instead of being signed B, they were signed Ramon. Robert would continue to use the name Ramon in his interactions with the KGB for some time. After these letters were delivered, the communication was altered for a short period of time. Instead of leaving notes at the dead drop site, the KGB put an ad in the Washington Times that read, Dodge 71, Diplomat, Needs Engine Work, 1000, Phone, 703-451-9780. Call next Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 1 p.m. The ad ran for four days, from July 14th to July 16th, 1986. What looked like a normal advertisement for a used car was actually a coded message 
intended for Robert. The following week, Robert called the number and spoke to a KGB agent. After further phone conversations, a dead drop was arranged and Robert collected $10,000 and a letter from a prearranged spot in Nottoway Park on August 19th. Over the next year, Robert would send at least three letters and packages to the KGB in exchange for $10,000 cash, which he once again collected from Nottoway Park. On September 26, 1987, Robert went to the dead drop site, but this time he was leaving something to be collected, a letter and a package containing classified documents. Whatever was in the package was obviously very valuable to the Russians, since three days later, a bank account in Moscow, in Robert's name, received a deposit of $100,000. This amount of money was far more than Robert had received in the past. Another $100,000 was deposited in the bank account in November, and smaller cash amounts were left in Nottoway Park. All told, Robert was paid around $230,000 by the Russians in 1987. In 1988, Robert and the KGB corresponded numerous times via letters, packages, and discs that were either left at Nottoway Park or were sent to a Soviet accommodation address in Virginia. Robert received $185,000 in cash and two diamonds, which he requested in lieu of cash, in exchange for information relating to national defense and communication intelligence. Robert shared information about the FBI's double agent program that was being run, as well as the identity of a Russian agent who had defected and had started working for the United States. These exchanges continued in 1989, with Robert receiving over $271,000. Despite requesting that the KGB pay some of his compensation with diamonds instead of cash, perhaps to stay under the radar, Robert returned two of the diamonds to the dead drop site and asked for them to be exchanged for cash. In 1990 and 1991, the exchanges slowed, with Robert being paid $115,000 and $64,000 for each year. Then, at the end of 1991, the exchanges stopped. Around this time, Robert's brother-in-law, Mark, who was an FBI agent working out of Chicago, became aware of a large amount of cash being kept in Robert and Bonnie's home. It was more than a man of Robert's position would have. Mark also noticed that Robert would use cash for frivolous spending. Mark wondered if the money had been illegally obtained and he decided to report his suspicions. However, Mark's report to his superiors did not result in an investigation. After 1991, it appeared that Robert Hansen had changed his ways and had stopped spying for the Russians. There were no more dead drops and it appeared that money didn't change hands. However, an FBI report released in 2003 show that Robert was still somewhat active in the years following his apparent break. In 1992, Robert was transferred to the FBI Security Threat List Unit. While in that unit, he hacked the FBI system and told his superiors that he did it as a way of proving there was a security flaw. This explanation was accepted and the matter was not pursued. Also in 1992, Robert gave sensitive information to the British Intelligence Service but once again, nothing came of this breach. In 1993, Robert approached a Russian agent in a parking garage and gave the agent a package of information, then left. This was very out of character for Robert, who always transferred information via dead drop sites to protect his identity. The Russians filed a formal protest about this incident 
and an investigation was opened. However, the investigation never linked Robert to the handover, and he continued to avoid detection. There is very little information about Robert's actions from 1993 until 1999 when he resumed spying. Apparently, he was laying very low. According to the affidavit that details all of Robert's known interactions with Russia, he started spying for the SVR, the new Russian intelligence agency that was set up after the fall of the Soviet Union. Robert was conducting searches of the FBI databases, looking for information about recent dead drops that the FBI had on their radar. The searches were general dead drop searches in the beginning and then were narrowed down to one particular spot, in Foxstone Park. It doesn't appear that any information was being shared with the Russians during this time. If it was, it was not valuable enough for Robert to receive any money. It is more likely that the information about which dead drop sites the FBI was looking at was more for Robert's information and preparation for his next move. On February 18, 2001, Robert drove to Foxstone Park with classified documents in his car. He had wrapped the documents in a plastic garbage bag and secured the bag closed with tape. When Robert arrived at the park, he walked to a predetermined area and put a piece of white tape on a pole and then placed the wrapped documents under a nearby footbridge, hidden from view. The white tape was prearranged code to the Russians, indicating that the drop had been made. When Robert turned and walked away, leaving the classified documents for a Russian agent to collect, he walked straight into a trap. Little did Robert know, the agents were watching and waiting to catch him in the act before moving in to make an arrest. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Okay, I'm back to talk to you again about public goods. This episode, as you know, is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products, from home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer, and tree-free paper products. So far, I've been able to try a lot of products in my wonderful goodie box, but I have to talk to you about the shampoo and conditioner that I received. It is so luxurious in my hair, and I know this sounds strange, but it just feels clean. So I highly recommend that if you're looking for a one-stop shop to get everything you need, you definitely should try Public Goods. So if you're like me, knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. And the wonderful thing about Public Goods, which makes me feel good about using their products and getting more of their products, is that they plant one tree for every order placed and have planted over 100,000 trees since September 2019. Now, because I love you guys, we worked out an exclusive deal just for the True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners. You'll receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right, they are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again, just like me, that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash TCFC or use code TCFC at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash TCFC to receive $15 off your first order. 
And be sure to tag True Crime Fan Club and Public Goods on Twitter and Instagram to show me what you got. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Now, if you think, okay, HelloFresh doesn't have what I'm looking for, that's just not true. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and kid-friendly recipes. The packaging HelloFresh uses to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and or already recycled content. One of my favorite parts is that you can save time and money and stress effortlessly by using HelloFresh. In fact, you can save 40% by using HelloFresh versus shopping at your local grocery store. And it's more convenient, too. You can keep your fridge stocked by adding extra proteins or sides like garlic bread to your weekly order. HelloFresh is committed to making fresh, delicious food available now more than ever and has taken extra steps to keep its employees and customers safe, including contactless delivery, tamper-proof packaging, and team member wellness checks. I haven't gotten my HelloFresh box just yet, but I have used them in the past and I cannot wait for the fun recipes I'm sure I'm going to love. I promise you, if my husband Brett can use it and cook a delicious meal, anybody can. So, if you would like to enjoy HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash 80TCFC and use code 80TCFC to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. Now, I know, have a seat, listen to that again. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 80TCFC and use code 80TCFC to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. The FBI had a suspicion that there was a spy in their organization, and they set to work identifying who was betraying them. The FBI worked with a former KGB-turned-SVR agent, who agreed to find and turn over information that may lead to the identity of the spy. The agent found proof that someone from inside the FBI was working with the Russians, but according to an ABC article, the proof did not directly implicate Robert. The proof included letters from Robert to the Russians, as well as other documents. Tips and surveillance showed that Robert's actions closely matched those of the spy they were looking for, and a four-month multi-department surveillance operation began. Agents from the FBI, CIA, Department of State, and Department of Justice combined their skills and resources in order to set a trap for Robert. This operation was made difficult because Robert was on the inside of the organization and the people investigating him were his co-workers. Robert had access to the same systems that they used and they noted that he frequently searched the systems to see if his movements had been noticed. To that end, they had to be careful about how they conducted the investigation. They had to make sure that Robert was unaware that he was under investigation, and they threw him off by asking him to develop new cybersecurity measures for the FBI, a job that they wouldn't entrust to someone they suspected of being a mole. This was done to boost Robert's ego and to give him a false sense of security. They used computer forensic techniques, undercover surveillance, and wiretapping to track Robert's movements and computer searches. Coworkers became witnesses, and day-to-day -day conversations became opportunities to collect anecdotal evidence, 
One coworker noted that Robert always used his Palm Pilot. For listeners too young to remember Palm Pilots, they were electronic notepads that synced to a person's personal computer, often used to make notes and save contact information. They were an early smartphone without the phone capability. The colleague decided to get two new Palm Pilots from the FBI, and he offered one to Robert, who declined. Robert said that he had placed his own encryption software on the device, which ensured that no one could get into it. This raised a red flag for the coworker, who in turn gave information about the potential importance of the Palm Pilot to the investigation. At the end of 2000, they transferred Robert from his position at the State Department, where he had worked for more than five years, to a role at FBI headquarters. Robert was placed in charge of a small team of people who were all aware that they were collecting evidence on Robert. He went from having legitimate reasons to access information about the Russians to a role where he had no need to access any files the Russians may be interested in. It is important to note that Robert was still able to access the information. This was an important step in the plan to catch Robert. The FBI wanted to see if Robert would still access the information when he had no work-related reason to. The four months of intense surveillance needed to end in an arrest and charges, and to do that, they needed to catch Robert in the act. So when Robert arranged to make the drop at Foxstone Park on February 18, 2001, the FBI was ready and waiting. They intercepted his communication with the Russians and worked out when and where the drop would be. They retrieved the package that the Russians had left for Robert, containing $50,000, then waited for Robert to make his drop. Robert climbed down under the bridge, tucked the package away, then climbed back onto the bridge where he shook the excess dirt from his shoes. He then walked, head down and hands in his pocket, back to his car. As he went to unlock his car, two panel vans pulled up beside him and two van loads of armed SWAT surrounded him. Robert went quietly. He didn't put up a fight and he asked for the guns to be lowered, saying they weren't needed. When he was arrested, Robert reportedly asked what had taken them so long and that is a fair question. Robert had been spying on and off for more than 30 years he had received $600,000 in cash and diamonds and another $800,000 waiting for him in a Moscow bank account. He was spying right under the noses of those that are charged with keeping the country safe from people like him. And yet he went undetected for more than three decades. Part of the reason why Robert managed to stay under the radar for so long is that he succeeded in keeping his identity a secret. The Russian documents that were given to the FBI didn't name anyone, likely because even the Russians weren't sure who was giving them the information. He refused to meet the Russians in person to further protect his identity. Robert also lived within his means. Despite acquiring hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash over 25 years, he still lived in a modest three-bedroom house and drove a Ford Taurus. He didn't frequently splash out or flash his wealth around, which meant there was no attention to draw to him and no one asking where he got the money. The 21 charges of espionage and conspiracy to commit espionage were filed in federal court. Robert initially pleaded not guilty to all charges. However, Robert faced a death penalty, and a not guilty plea meant that the case would go to trial. Robert was caught red-handed, and a guilty verdict was likely. 
57-year-old Robert was eager to have the death penalty taken off the table, and he quickly agreed to cooperate with the FBI in exchange for a plea deal that would spare his life. As a part of the plea deal, six charges were withdrawn, leaving Robert to plead guilty to 15 charges. He entered his guilty plea at a 10-minute-long hearing on July 6, 2001. While he awaited sentencing, he spent time debriefing the FBI, telling them everything he had shared with the Russians. In May of 2002, Robert stood before the judge and received his sentence. He was ordered to serve 15 life sentences, served consecutively, with no chance of parole. Bonnie Hansen cooperated with the authorities and as a result was able to receive the benefits of Robert's pension, which amounted to $40,000 a year. Of course, the question on everyone's lips once the case hit the media was how did Robert stay under the radar for so long? Was he an impeccable spy who never slipped up? Or was it down to luck and chance? A 2003 FBI report that looked into Robert's espionage suggested that there were red flags that the FBI ignored or didn't follow up on as early as the 1980s. In the report, it says that Robert frequently mishandled information and violated procedures very early in his career, but there was no investigation. This may have been due to the cultural and systematic problems in the FBI and the mindset of denial that the FBI agent could be a mole. In fact, there were a series of breaches in the 1980s that the FBI blamed on a CIA agent because they were so sure there could never be a spy inside of the FBI. The report stated that in 1987, Robert made a security breach when he was debriefing a Soviet defector. While it was noted at the time that Robert was not to be trusted with sensitive information, there was no further investigation. Lack of promotion and other employment opportunities seemed to be the only consequence Robert ever faced until his arrest in 2001. At the time of this recording, Robert Philip Hansen is serving his sentence at ADX Florence, a maximum security prison outside of Florence, Colorado. He is 76 years old. He has been in prison for nearly 20 years, and he will never be released. It appears that he is still married to Bonnie. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Jessica Ann, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. 